Welcome to the Estate Planning Project. My name is Mary Bart, Chair of Caregiving Matters. Our purpose with this project is public education on a wide range of estate planning topics. With a growing aging population, unprecedented wealth transfer from one generation to the next, and a dramatic rise in estate litigation, the need for estate planning public education has never been greater. This is a technology-based project that is producing podcasts, articles, and blog posts. As a social collaborative initiative, experts such as lawyers, estate planners, and financial planners share their thoughts and ideas on a wide range of estate planning topics. This project, however, offers general information only and is not a substitute for seeking personalized professional advice. Our podcast topic today is called Changes to Probate Rules, and our guest expert to help us understand this important topic is Leonie DeGraff Hastings, and her firm is called DeGraff Financial Strategies. She is a certified financial planner, a retirement and estate planning specialist, and an elder planning counselor. Leona has grown up in the financial industry with her father being a distinguished advisor for over 45 years. She began her own financial career in the family over 15 years ago and has since built her own successful practice in Burlington, Ontario, where she resides with her family. Over the years, Leona found herself gravitating towards helping seniors and assisting seniors and their families with complete retirement and estate planning. Her approach is to educate and assist retirees in simplifying their season of life by providing clients with information, choices, and tools needed to make wise financial decisions. When necessary, Leona utilizes a team of experts from lawyers, accountants, to senior financial advisors and fund managers to assist in case consultations. Her role is that of a quarterback for your finances, bringing in the solutions you need to secure your retirement from the best people and companies who provide them. She believes that no two people are alike and therefore no two financial retirement or estate plans are alike. A little bit more about Leona for you to know. She was voted one of Burlington's favorite financial advisors and best insurance broker in 2014 by the Burlington Post Reader's Choice Awards. And for six years in a row, she was one of those voted as the best financial advisors in Burlington. So we are honored today to have you, Leona, join our project. Welcome. Thank you very much, Mary. I really appreciate uh, talking to you today. Well, that's great. And our topic is probate, and I'm sure you deal with this on a daily basis with your clients. I do. I do a lot of community talks, so just to bring education and awareness to seniors and retirees, the changes that have come about to the probate rules since January 2015, and how they can prepare themselves as well as their executors. Well, that's a great introduction. My first question for you is, what is probate? That's a great question, Mary. So a lot of people are a bit confused about what probate is. Many people think that just because they have their will done or they believe that they have their estate matters in order, they think that they don't have to go through probate. And that's not always correct. 
probate is actually the process of the provincial court approving the presented will as authentic and valid. And what that means is the courts are looking for a will that's done in proper format, as well as it's properly witnessed by, by people that are not mentioned or included in the will. So that's what the court is looking for. And once they have approved the will as being authentic and valid, then they go ahead and they issue what is called in Ontario a certificate of a state trustee. That's given to the executor, and that is what the executor needs in order to gain access to things like accounts, assets, information, and property of the person that's passed away. Okay, and so with that in mind, does everyone's estate need to be probated? Not necessarily. So first of all, there's no probate generally when assets are transferring from spouse to spouse. Often, most assets will roll over under the Family Law Act to the surviving spouse. So unless there's extenuating circumstances, like maybe the the spouse that's passed had a business and maybe they have a separate will to deal with their corporation or something like that, but generally, there's no probate from spouse to spouse. It's really only when the second spouse passes away that probate comes into play. Also, it used to be that accounts less than about $10,000 was the threshold, that the banks weren't asking for this certificate of estate trustee to go ahead and, and release the account. But now, you know, everything is getting more litigious out there. The banks are erring on the side of caution, and even for smaller accounts, they are asking for that certificate of a state trustee before they go ahead and, and release any information or any amounts in even smaller accounts. Well, and that's interesting. And at the beginning of our conversation, you had mentioned that the rules had changed in 2015. Could you speak to what changes came about then? Yes, of course. So it used to be really just a one-step process. If you had to get that certificate of a state trustee, you would apply to the courts, you would give them the approximate values of what you believe the assets to be worth. And the process typically took about, you know, depending on how busy the courts are, but it can take anywhere from six to 12 weeks for that process. The old system was really just a one step and there weren't any checks and balances. So you know, if you put down there that you sold mom's house for 300000 but you really sold it for 500000 there never were any checks and balances to make sure that the government was capturing that additional probate fee that, that they should have, or estate tax, as it's called in Ontario. So I, the government looked back in the last 20 years of their revenue from this estate administration tax and realized that it was much lower than what they had anticipated. So they felt that, you know, maybe things were being misreported or maybe people were forgetting or maybe there was some extra estate planning that was going on, but they decided to bring in a second step. Now, it's called an estate information return, and that has to be filed now within 90 days of the executor receiving the certificate of estate trustee that they received in that first step. So this new estate information return, it's a seven-page document, 
And this is going to be used as the basis for all future audits. So when we now apply for probate in the first step, rather than saying a payment, they now call it a deposit. So that might lend you to think maybe they're looking for a little extra revenue in this department. So it's uh, quite more onerous than it ever has been before with this new two-step process. And there's also a new four-year reassessment window. So four years from the date that the executor files that new estate information return, the government can come back and audit that estate to make sure that the values that were given were correct and that all steps were followed correctly. So it really does have teeth now. It never used to, like I said, have this checks and balances but now they've set up a process for a four-year audit window. So, so it really does sort of stretch out the job of the executor and certainly makes it more liability on them as well for those four years. And so that's very interesting. So they have to document all the assets. And so one would instantly think of a house or a cottage or property, but I bet it would also include things like jewelry and any artwork. So that would be an awful lot of extra work for the executor to actually document this. Definitely it is. And I've even heard of some audits where, you know, maybe a piece of jewelry was not included in the new estate information return, yet they had that piece of jewelry insured on a home insurance rider. So I've seen the auditor go in and say, well, it was valuable enough to insure it on a on a home insurance rider, but you haven't listed it in document here, so in the list of assets. So they're really digging deep to capture the value as much as they can. So things like your home, any mutual funds that you have, any GICs at the bank, a cottage, vacation or rental property, anything like that, boats, vehicles, vessels, All of those assets uh, need to be reported for probate. And we're recommending that on larger assets like real estate or things like that, that perhaps a professional evaluation is done and put in writing so that if the executor or the estate is audited, that they have sort of a a third party uh, vouching for, uh, for the value of that asset. Well, that's a really good point, and I hope people take that to heart. So how are these probate fees calculated? Well, Mary, the good news is that the probate fees themselves have not changed. The way that they're calculated is it's half a percent on the first 50000 of estate value, and then it's one and a half percent of the balance of the estate. Other fees are also charged on that amount. So First of all, we have to give a deposit of 1.5% of the assets to the government when we submit that application for probate and submit the will to the courts to be validated. So that's the deposit that I mentioned, but everybody else is also entitled to charge their fees based on that amount submitted for probate, such as the lawyer is entitled to charge up to 5% of the probated assets. An accountant is also entitled to charge up to 5% of the probated assets. Now, often I tell people that if the deceased had been working with an accountant on an ongoing basis, 
and they have all of their tax history, then it may not be as expensive as that. They may be able to negotiate with that accountant an hourly rate rather than a percentage of, of the probated amount. So, but the executor is also entitled to 5% of the probated assets because they do have a big job. So you can see that if we have the Minister of Finance at 1.5%, the lawyer up to 5 the accountant up to 5%, and then the executor is entitled to 5%, you can see how that can quickly add up to 16.5% that comes off the top of the estate before the balance is distributed to the beneficiaries. So when you get the knee-jerk reaction that says, oh, what's the big deal? It probates only 1.5%. It's not that much. You have to take into consideration that everybody else is charging their fees on top of that, and that itself can take a big bite out of the estate that not many people are aware of. And I bet that will come as a shock to many families who are looking at an asset and, and a total estate thinking they're going to get the whole amount. And I bet they are shell-shocked when they see that legally they don't get the whole amount and everybody gets a piece of it. And I bet the more the families and the public can be educated around that, they can plan accordingly. Exactly. And that's why I like to try and get this information out to retirees and to seniors because when you're in the process of settling an estate, it's often a very emotional time. You're grieving and people aren't so keen to question the lawyer on, you know, why did it cost this much or that much? People are always worried that they're going to appear like vultures if they're trying to maximize the value of the estate. So they tend not to ask a lot of questions in that phase and they just take what comes their way. Whereas if they know about it beforehand, then maybe they can take some steps to, you know, minimize some of those costs. Well, that's interesting. And in speaking in terms of steps, what steps can an executor take in order to settle an estate to completion? Well, it's a big job for the executor and, and there are checklists that are out there that will help the executor to, uh, to stay on track to make sure that they haven't missed any of the steps. And those are easily found online or sometimes even a funeral home will provide them. But generally, the steps to estate settlement are, first of all, the executor will need to locate the will and then they need to locate and list the assets as well as their approximate value. Next, the named executor applies to the court for that certificate of estate trustee. And at that time, they have to submit the payment of approximately 1.5% of the estimated value of the estate. The third step, that if the will is in order and the executor has been approved, then that certificate of estate trustee is issued. And that's really the key that unlocks the assets and the information of the estate for the executor and allows them to go forward and start to liquidate the assets. Their job, the first job when they locate the will and the assets is they have to secure the assets, make sure that they can't be stolen, that they're secure. So the fourth step would be to complete and file the new estate information return. And again, it has to be filed within 90 days of the date of that certificate of estate trustee. So it's really important that executors be mindful of the dates and be mindful of the deadlines because there could be penalties 
that follow if it's not done within that time. Now, personally, I hope that maybe the government will take a look at this as we go along in this new process, because I think that putting that onus on an executor, especially if they're a loved one of the deceased, that's a lot to ask for them within, you know, sort of the first 90 or 120 days of, of losing a loved one is to gather all of this information. So I'm hoping that estate planners and lawyers and even the general public will let the government know that maybe could expand on this a little bit because it is a difficult time. And, you know, not only is it a difficult time, I know many people within families when a loved one dies they go to the executor and they are greedy and they go, where's my piece? I want my check. I'm flying out tomorrow. Give me my check. And I know people who have done this. And yes. what the public really needs to know is this is not an instant process. It takes time. And just because someone is anxious to have this wrap up doesn't mean yes. it's going to be fast. So the families need to know and be patient that this is a really important legal process that has to walk through the system. And I bet sometimes it gets bounced back for lack of information or whatever. And so it is not instant. And people have gone to lawyers that I know and say, where's my check? And they yeah. get a fast education that it's not coming today. <laughs> exactly. That's a great point, Mary. So it is not an instant process. Uh, Stats Canada averages that it takes at least 18 months to settle out an estate. 18 to 24 months is the average. And that statistic was given before this new state information return is required. So it is a long process. It will delay bequeaths. And I understand that when people are grieving, they would like to wrap things up and perhaps put things behind them and get on to their new life. But like you say, this is a process. It's not instant. When you think about it, you're wrapping up someone's entire existence on this earth. And that may have been 85 years here on this earth. And that's a lot of things that need to be wrapped up. And it's also out of a matter of respect as well. Absolutely. So what are some of the common strategies to avoid probate and do they actually work? Yes, I get asked this question quite often. And uh, I know a lot of people have been recommended by often it's the bank teller to maybe put adult children on as a joint owner onto your bank account. And that will make things easier for you down the road. And you may even be able to avoid probate by doing that. But I would caution people to really think long and hard about whether they want to put their adult children onto their accounts as joint for several reasons. The first reason is that most people don't realize that by adding an owner or taking away an owner by any kind of ownership change on an asset or an account, that actually triggers a taxable disposition and it triggers a capital gain. So if you're going to add your adult child onto, let's say, your non-registered investment account or your bank account, you need to know that it's supposed to be reported to the government and that any gains on that account or that asset going forward are now supposed to be shared between the original account owner and the adult child that maybe they put on their account. But again, I caution the idea of putting your adult children onto your account as a co-owner because if you're joint owners now with your kids, that means that you're also jointly responsible for their misfortune. So if your adult child ends up 
going through a divorce and the assets are called into question for equalization, they're going to call in half of your assets because your child is named as a 50% owner on your asset. Or let's say, you know, you've got a child, they're doing well, you're not concerned whatsoever that there's going to be any divorce or anything like that. Anybody can get into an accident. And that's why they're called accidents, because they weren't planned. So if your child ends up hitting somebody and disables them, that family is now going to sue your child for a lot of money because that's a lot of long-term care that's needed for this disabled person. And again, if they're half owner of your assets, then half of your assets are going to come into that mix. So it really is a risky proposition in my opinion, to put your kids on as the joint owner. But lastly, for this entire probate process, it's really no longer effective in avoiding probate. The government is, with this new process, they're going after low-hanging fruit. And low-hanging fruit easily are joint accounts. So it's an easy thing for the government to target because they know that a lot of seniors are putting their adult children onto their joint accounts. So really what they're doing is they're assessing these joint accounts to see who is the rightful owner of this. And they're assessing it on two levels because ownership has a legal ownership, but there's also beneficial ownership. And by adding your child onto your bank account or your non-registered investment account, legally they may be the owner of it, but are they really the beneficial owner? And what that means is, Whose money was it that was put into that savings account? Was it mom's money or was it the adult child's money? So who's been paying the taxes on that account and the growth on that account all along? You know, is it both people's bills that are being paid out of that account or is it still just mom's bills that are being paid out of that account? So they have some mechanisms that by assessing it on the legal as well as the beneficial level, of where they can sort of attack these accounts and deny them for uh, for bypassing probate. So it's really no longer, I think, a, a viable strategy with these new rules. So a couple of other strategies that, that have been used in the past to bypass probate, a secondary will. So that strategy has always been around, but money can't go into a secondary will, only stuff. So let's say if you have an antique car collection, you could draft up a secondary will just to deal with that antique car collection, and that could avoid probate initially. However, if one of the beneficiaries contests that secondary will, then it automatically has to go to probate in order to be decided on how to deal with that. So a secondary will has always been around. It's not a new strategy, but it is limited in, in what can happen there so or what can go into it. And lastly, a trust. A trust has always been available to bypass the estate, but the government is also tightening up the rules on trusts as well. So you've also got setup costs with a trust. And then you've got annual trustee fees in order to keep that trust going for as long as, as you wish. And, you know, those are all very interesting things, but it also tells me and tells the public how complicated this whole thing is around estates and probate. And what we're really trying to do with this project is say to people, take a listen to these podcasts, but really contact you, Leona, or an accountant or a lawyer 
or someone in your own local community to talk about these issues and get the professional advice because lay people are new to this and it's complicated and there are answers out there. People might not actually like the answers that they're going to get, but there are people like yourself who know the right way to advise families to walk through these things on probate. Exactly. And if you talk to a financial planner or, you know, maybe your investment advisor, a very simple way to be able to avoid probate is to transfer your savings into segregated funds. Segregated funds are very similar to mutual funds, but they're offered by life insurance companies. And because they are considered a life insurance contract, because they're offered by the life companies, they actually don't form part of the estate. And anything that you hold in a segregated fund bypasses the entire probate process and just gets paid out directly to beneficiaries. And whether that's a registered account, such as an RRSP, a RIF, or a TFSA, or whether that's a non-registered account, or an open account, or a cash account, some people call them. Any of those can be held at a life insurance company, either in the segregated funds, or in a life insurance company's GICs. And by doing so, everything will, like I said, avoid probate, it avoids all those fees, and it avoids some of those delays that we were talking about in terms of a benefactor is, is anxious to get their hands on you know, uh, their inheritance. And typically, segregated funds pay out to the beneficiaries, often within 10 to 14 days of receiving the claim forms. So it really makes the process of sort of dividing up the estate a lot quicker than if everything is just left at the bank. Well, that's really good information for people to know. And my last question for you, are there any other final tips that you'd like to share? I would like people to just make sure that they choose their executor wisely. They want to choose someone who is capable and likely to outlive them. Also make sure that communicate with the executor that you've chosen. Make sure that they understand that you have chosen them as their executor but you want to make sure that they are willing to serve because just because you've named someone as their as your executor they are not obligated to serve they can renounce their position which may leave your estate exposed to perhaps the next person showing up on the court steps applying for that position of executor may not have been the person that you would choose so make sure that they are willing to serve and if they're not then that gives you time to find someone else. Because the executor is personally liable for anything that they do and don't do in regards to the estate. So this is why there's a lot of people that are shying away from taking on the role of executor. It once used to be considered an honor, but now it really is like a part-time job. And with the added personal liability, there are people that are shying away from this. So just make sure that your executor is willing and and able to serve. And lastly, I just want to be sure that people are clear that a power of attorney is while you're alive and an executor kicks in after you've passed. So some people think that they have a power of attorney and that will uh, roll over to when they pass away and that power of attorney will become their executor. But that's not how it works. There's no crossover between those positions or those roles. One role ends at death and the other one begins at death. 
So make sure that you have all of your documents in order, your power of attorney for health, your power of attorney for property, as well as an up-to-date will, naming an executor. That's wonderful information. And I'm sure people have learned a lot of great detail about probate from you. Could you please share your contact information with our audience? Sure, absolutely. I'm at DeGraff Financial Strategies. I'm located in Burlington, Ontario. And you can check out my website. It's www.dgfs, as in DeGraff Financial Strategies, .ca. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email me at Leone, L-E-O-N-Y, at D-G-F-S. .ca or just give me a call at 905-632-9900. Well, thank you for joining our project Leone and to our audience. I hope you listen and learn to the wisdom that we have learned from Leone today. Thank you and goodbye.